Hey, Steve. Good morning from not so sunny San Jose, California. I'm finally kind of on your time zone. We're pretty close. Only three hours different. This is weird for us. This is so weird. In, in Hong Kong, it would be 9 p.m. So this is or even 10 p.m. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm here, as you know, for Verge 23, the Green Biz Climate Tech Conference. And it was it was day one yesterday. I'm about to leave for day two after our call. And I'm just having such a good time. It's such a quality event. And um, I've obviously managed to find the Future Food crew and met some really great old and new friends. But the quality of the conversation and, and the dialogue has been absolutely excellent. And it's only been one day. So I'm really excited for the next two days. No, that's awesome. And I'm excited. I'm sure next week you'll give like all your takeaways and highlights and everything but i'm excited to hear what you think because i feel like you and i we've gone to i don't even know how many different just food focused conferences which some are great some are not so great but either way like well, there needs to be a whole component on on the, the climate that's talked about when in relation to food so i i can't wait to hear absolutely because this one's and much broader exactly and that's one of the reasons i came all the way here i mean you know it's 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 a lot of flying which is not good for the planet. So yes, I do feel bad about that. Um, but it's very far away. Um, but I wanted to come when they when they invited me to speak. Um, I'm I'm doing a workshop today with some very very awesome people all about communicating sustainability. So mine is going to be all about greenwashing and also you know what editors look for in press releases. But but it's really important to me to have come here because I, as you know really think that we need a broader conversation. And I've always really been fighting for us to contextualize food within the broader climate conversation, which I don't feel like our industry always has done as well. And the problem with the food only events is they're a little bit navel gazy, right? It's a lot mm -hmm. of us kind of just, it's great. And it's a, it's an amazing bunch of people, but you know, macroeconomics have changed. Uh, the food tech sector has taken a beating and you know, VCs have also, a lot of generalist VCs have kind of exited the space. And now it's sort of like, we need to regroup and we need to think differently. And I, you know, I'm hearing from a lot of funds that they're broadening their scope and there's so much to do in food. There's not just protein and there's so many kind of after effects of every food choice we make. So it's, it's really great to be here. Um, Verge is absolutely not just about food and it's really, it, it's, they're quite ahead of their time. They've had this conference for 11 years. So they've, they called out climate tech way before anyone else, I feel like. And so, you know, there's tons of stuff here about energy and, and renewables and transport. Um, but definitely you can see food has become more prominent in their programming in the last uh, few years. And yesterday, my most of my day was actually all about what is the funding of agri-food going to look like mm. and how do we adapt it given all the changing, um, the changing like macro conditions and, and industry specific conditions. So it's been fascinating. No, that's awesome. And I'm jealous that you're there. It sounds like some really good conversations. And, and I know that you are, you, you have something starting relatively soon and we gotta we gotta get this podcast rolling i don't know if our listeners know sonali's a pretty big deal she's she's a speaker at first <laughs> she's 
she she's really she's important so we gotta, <laughs> we gotta make sure she's not late <laughs> yeah. oh steve <laughs> no but um no i mostly yeah no it's fine we will have to talk faster than we usually talk which i'm sure we can handle it um we yeah we've still not managed to keep these under 20 minutes i don't see that yeah we said we're we're gonna do these in 10 minute clips and then that was hysterical a few months and we're like at 30 minutes minutes. in (laughs) (laughs) um no there's too much to talk about and actually i'm sure like we you know to all the listeners steve and i have been talking about how we can kind of add on stuff and do some interviews with other people so actually uh, more to come (laughs) but we will it's gonna get longer (laughs) (laughs) so steve um let's jump into the big story um this week we actually it's three big stories in one so we've combined three pieces of reporting from three major investigations um to into one big story so there's been this is more european focused but i think it affects everyone but there have been three major stories that have come out about investigations showing basically political and policy lobbying um, from big big meat, big food, big ag. Um, climate media outlet Desmog had a really fantastic investigation about the deep ties between the agricultural lobby groups and the influential EU politicians that help make policy decisions that was specifically tied to pesticide um, regulation that was affected. Then secondly, Um, The one I think is kind of the biggest deal. The Guardian did a bombshell reporting on the very, very famous um, report that came out from the UNFAO in 2006 called Livestock's Long Shadow. So it's a very important report because it's that it's the report that kind of set off a lot of the sector that you and I are in, Steve, right? It's the report that said, that beef and livestock um, was responsible for something like 14% of all greenhouse gas emissions. And and that is a lot of where the genesis for our space happened about 10 years later. So super important report. And it's really fascinating to get the backstory from people that were involved in the report about how they were censored, undermined, bullied um, by industry and how much pressure industry put on FAO officials to um, alter the numbers and actually a report that came out a few years later reduced the number to 11%. That's why there's such a misunderstanding in terms of what percentage of greenhouse gas emissions livestock is responsible for and the numbers are between 11 and 19.5%. And now we know that one of the reasons is because there was so much pressure to lower that number. So so very explosive um, piece. Um, I don't feel like it's even gotten enough uh, airtime um, globally because it, it, this really has an effect. I mean, we are not getting the full data and we should be. And we, to be fair to the authors um, and the researchers involved with the report, they really pushed to make sure that their voices were heard and they didn't um, give in that much on the 2006 version, but later versions were changed. Um, so that's major. Then third, also major, is um, aggressive pressure from the meat lobby really affected the EU caged farming ban, and it is now on hold. And this is also huge. Um, this was a, a, an investigation that was done by a group of journalists, including the, 
the Guardian, but also including this fabulous journalist called Tin Lai Wen. She's a Burmese um, journalist that is based in Europe and she does fantastic reporting. Her newsletter, Thin Ink, is outstanding. Um, and she and a group of investigative journalists have been working on this for a long time. And it is really interesting because a lot of people have wondered, Europe has always been ahead of the curve on animal welfare. And a lot of people have worried, have wondered why there has been this sudden change and, and kind of delay with the, the caged farming ban. So just unbelievable. The, these came like literally one day after the next. So we decided to cover them all and, and create this big story. So what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's great coverage and like you and your team did a good job combining all this and highlighting all of it. It's a, it's a tough one to see for for not just our space, but just like the, the climate and, and everyone involved. It's because it's one of those things where you, you like to think that there's a lot of positive change being made and that we're moving in the right direction. And the tough thing is that the the companies or the organizations who are in power right now, so the, the incumbents of big ag, whether it's big meat, dairy, or just the traditional ag space, they are huge organizations with massive dollars that they could put to, put to work towards lobbying. And their, their, their ability to sway things in their direction is meaningful. And it's, it's tough because it's like, on one hand, there's a lot of either venture capital or other dollars or innovation that's being funded to try to shift us in a better direction for food and, and, and climate. But it, it's kind of a drop in the bucket if the policy doesn't kind of follow along with it. I really do feel like there's only so much change that can happen driven by new companies and new innovations. At some point, we do need policy to be a positive tailwind for this innovation and change, as opposed to being something that is a, is a blocker or a wall. So, um, and, and you know that lobbying is happening in the background. You always know it, it's something that exists, but to see it exist to this extent, and also in, in the EU uh, is tough. I mean, you and I, have, we joked about it before, how, how like America is so far behind on anything climate related and the EU is pushing progress. So this is a little bit of a hit to that. Um, and I mean, I, but I also like to not be so doom and gloom on it. I do think that this should kind of uh, be a little bit of fuel to the fire for all of the companies and entrepreneurs out there who are working on on innovations in this space. In this case, it would be on, on meat and dairy and then also on, on pesticides and fertilizers because at the end of the day, what these big companies want is to increase their top line revenue or improve their bottom line profits. And if all of a the sudden there's something out there that says we can reduce our pesticide use, but it's actually really profitable for the farmers and, and the companies, then that would just be an acquisition target for these big companies, right? They would say, well, okay, we can't, we can't fight them. This is a better innovation. So let's buy it and let's, let's profit off of this. So innovation is still a key component to this. Um, so it should just kind of, again, add fuel to the fire. So many thoughts from everything you just said, which of course I can, we're on, we're, we're on the same page. I mean, I've always felt that policy and we've talked about it many times is, is a key part of the climate fight and we're not gonna get there without it. I think things that come to mind here for me is innovation is key, um, but what's a little depressing here is to see that big, big business both invests in innovation when it's convenient and is also in the background lobbying against progress on the policy front. So 
they're doing both at the same time. And the tentacles that they have are so widespread. And yes, it is depressing to see that even in the EU, which is really the, the leader in the fight against climate change in terms of trying to alter policy and definitely policy there is way ahead of anywhere else. There's still so much you know, underhandedness going on. And to think that this, this landmark report from the UNFAO, I mean, you wanna believe that the UNFAO is you know, to some degree impartial. And of course, no, we're all humans and we're all just you know, stuck with our agenda and our biases and open to be on some level kind of, um, you know, manipulated. Um, I think the other thing that this really calls calls out, and I say this, you know, as, as, as somebody in the space is journalism is so important and we need to oh, 100%. journalism. And we are not gonna get anywhere without, you know, transparency and good data. And it's so funny, cause I'm here in Silicon Valley, you know, the the, the birthplace of tech, the birthplace of big data businesses, which is really what all the big tech companies are. Um, they, they sell and harvest and manipulate and use and make money off of our data. Um, and yet we don't see the irony of how much we've defunded um, and de deprioritized uh, good journalism. And at the end of the day, good journalism is the original important data that we need. So just a little reminder that invest in, in, in media and your local journalists and so support good media that is doing good work. Um, we need yeah, definitely. I mean, without, without this type of stuff, like we would, we like good media, good, good reporting. We wouldn't know that this is actually happening in the background. Right. So this is it's vital for sure. Absolutely. So yeah, so much to unpack. And I really recommend that everybody um, takes a minute and, and just has a look at the three stories and, and, you know, some of these journalists risked, risked a lot to put out these investigations and it's hard work and it is not tech level paid work. So, and it is, it is, it is God's work. It is important work that we all need. We all put these numbers and these facts in our presentations, in our decks. How many times have I seen that 2006 report, um, Livestock Long Shadow in a, in a startup's deck? So, you know, take a moment and, and, and get some facts. Um, I, it's really important. So what else, what else is going on this week? Let's go to something. Yeah. I really liked, here. yeah, I, I liked, I liked the piece that you guys did on, uh, on blended meat. So, um, in, in the newsletter itself, it, it talks about, um, it highlights the, the CEO of the blended meat startup 5050 foods who has the, the consumer product brand, uh, called both. And, and it goes over who the target consumer is, why blended meats might have failed before and, and why there might just be like a, a, a marketing issue for the category that could be overcome. But I, I, I really think blended meats are a very interesting idea. And just to be clear, if anyone doesn't know what I mean by blended meats, this is the idea of taking actual animal meat. So let's say beef, for instance, and you blend it with, with uh, some type of non-meat product that could be uh, just vegetables. It could be some other protein isolate or something like that. And there's companies out there that are taking all the different kinds of approaches. So it's real animal products combined with plants. Um, and the reason this is so interesting to me is because we've basically seen that plant-based meat, at least in the U.S., has been kind of hitting a peak. Uh, and maybe it's still growing a little bit, but now single-digit growth year over year. And 
And then we're saying, okay, well then if that's not really the big solution, then is fermentation going to be, is cultivated going to be, those time horizons are really long, blah, blah, blah. What's really interesting though, is these blended meat products can come in and they can be sold today. They There's no real regulatory hurdle for this. And I'm seeing a lot of things that are making me believe that consumers are really interested in this. And when I say consumers, I mean meat eaters because a vegan and a vegetarian, they would never eat this. There's real animal product in this. So you know for a fact, they don't have any interest. So this is directly trying to appeal to people who eat meat. And it, it also means that if there are actual sales of these products, so in this case, a 50-50 food sells two of its burgers, which are 50% beef and 50% vegetables, they know that if those burgers are consumed, that they actually saved one burger's worth of meat demand and meat consumption. So it's guaranteed displacement. So it's an interesting one because I, I work in the world of like mission-driven venture capital. We want to remove animals from the food system. So it feels a little weird to say, hey, maybe a solution is something that actually includes animal product. But it's looking like that, that there's a, a high chance that this is, has real legs to it. So um, I just really like this one. And I think we can talk about so many different nuances of blended meat for a long time. So big shout out to you, Steve. Um, you talked to me about a deal that you were looking at uh, a couple of, I want to say almost a couple of months ago, and it was in blended meat. And we had this whole debate because obviously Raised and Rooted by Tyson came out a few years ago and it didn't do well, their blended meat product. And I had sort of felt like maybe the marketing just wasn't going to work around this product and the consumer was going to be confused. Um, but it you had brought to my attention that a new host of startups now is looking at, you know, re-examining this. And so thanks to you, we're now doing an entire mini-series um, on a content mini-series on this topic. So it is both about blended meat and hybrid meat. Hybrid is where it's plant-based meat with some cultivated. And so readers do stay tuned for our entire series. So we've We've basically gone and, and we're going to have a feature on pretty much every company in the space. And we've also talked to, we're going to talk to investors, including Steve, of course, and we're talking to, you know, folks like GFI and, and, and other organizations to understand kind of how they view the potential in this space. Cause I'm now fascinated and want to explore in depth. And so this is the first piece in the series and it's, um, it's a really interesting one. Andrew seems like a very smart founder uh, and guy it, and, and, you know, yes, it, to some extent, this is a marketing issue. And, and are we going to be able to bridge the gap for a consumer that is looking, you know, the, the key thing is who is the consumer here? Cause it's obviously not going to be a vegan or a vegetarian. Okay. Cause if it has real meat in it, that precludes them from buying it. So buy, so they're out. Um, is it going to be for a flex? Is this the original flexitarian product? And it's funny because Andrew um, really doesn't like the term blended meat. Um, and in the piece, he he says that one of the terms that he's looking at and talking to other pe folks in the industry um, around is flex meat, which is interesting to me. I, I It kind of grew on me. I, I like it. I mean, again, this is just something he's exploring and it's going to be interesting as we put out more of these, uh, the, the pieces in this series, how the others are looking at it. Um, 
What's also I don't know that I I don't I don't I'm not a big fan of flex meat to be honest. I'm one person. It's super subjective. I feel like maybe maybe less meat. <laughs> I I don't know, but like less meat is interesting. Um, yeah. Not sure. Yeah, less meat is interesting, and this is also going to be like how do we differentiate the blended versus the hybrid, and and it's there's so much to unpack here. Um, one. But it's so interesting because like, and I can't wait for the like the longer series that you do on it just to see other thoughts and approaches. But like, it's just like I did have one of the companies that are out there that I was looking at. They did. I had them send samples to friends of mine who eat meat, and some of them are opposed to alt protein products. Right? They won't even touch an Impossible Burger or Beyond. Or, um, and I'm I can't try it myself because I don't I don't eat meat. Right? So, and I can tell you that like feedback was off the charts positive. And this is one of the products, right? There's, there's different approaches. There's, there's Andrew's approach. There's other companies out there that are taking different approaches. So it's not just if it works for one product that it will work for all of them. But I mean, these are people that I know who won't touch all proteins and they do eat meat. And they were, they were like, yeah, I would buy this. I would totally buy this. I had a really good meal. It was great. Um, and that to me is not, that's, that's different. That's very different than what we've been seeing in the market the past few years. Absolutely. And, and the impact potential, I think, is super interesting. One of the feedbacks that I usually get, and especially from folks in Asia, is, um, you know, this is already around in so many categories. Um, for example, I'll give you uh, one of the most uh, sold items in Asia in terms of like ready to go product that is used from everything from fast food uh, outlets to food service to supermarket is fish balls. And fish bowls are already a mix of uh, plant proteins uh, and 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 the and fish or seafood. So, you know, it's not an entirely new category. The the idea yeah, and that's an interesting point too. Rebranding, um, right? I think it's about the rebranding because I've seen online like like when I've seen posts about some any type of blended meat, I've seen people come and say, "Well, this is not new." People companies have been using fillers for years in, in mm -hmm. meat products or chicken nuggets. And it's like, yeah, sure. But they actually would rather you not know that there's fillers in there. Well, Whereas exactly. it's I always do think seen, that the whole. It's always been seen as a compromise. It's always been seen as like, of course. Actually, so this is why it's so interesting. It's like now we're actively calling it out. And re so the branding here, the marketing is going to be super important. And I'm also going to talk to marketing folks about to get different perspectives on that, because I've definitely um, talked to some people offline and they do not agree at all that this is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean like the consumers that I know though, my friends who had tried it, they, they were, they were like, this is, I guess, extra vegetables, which is great. Um, it's actually less calories, um, potentially could be cheaper because if you use commodity beef, then that's actually a really cheap ingredient. Um, so it's, there's so many different ways that you can market. Is this, is this for health and lower calories? Is it for, like, I don't think you should be focusing on the planet or animal welfare, but um, it's just a really interesting new idea where it's saying, we're calling this out. We're trying to be blended. We're trying to reduce meat consumption, but um, we're not trying to hide it in some, in some way. So I, I think it's just a really interesting topic. Agreed. All right. But well, what, what about you? Anything else? Well, we're going to have time for one last story. It's, it's we i gotta i gotta run unfortunately so we're gonna do one last you're story. so important it's crazy it's <laughs> no <wild>. no I <laughs> there's a 9 a.m i don't want to miss um uh so let's 
let's do our positive story of the week. So what, okay. what is going to be our positive story of the week? I, I think you. Yeah. So the, yeah, the positive, um, I actually found it in, it's in, in the newsletters in the future food quick bite section. So it's at the yeah. bottom, you click on the link. There's a ton of extra information, which is awesome. So the one that I thought was really positive was it says that in the Netherlands and in Belgium, McDonald's has collaborated with a Dutch dairy company called Friesland Campina. I probably butchered the name, but that's, that's how I read it. Um, and the whole idea is to collaborate with them to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions um, and reduce it by 14% by 2025. So 14% uh, within two years, That's that seems really, really meaningful. But what I, so obviously that's positive. That's positive for the environment and it's McDonald's taking a big stand on that. But if you dig into it a little more, what I love is that there's apparently also incentives for farmers uh, where they're rewarded for results in outdoor grazing and animal health health and welfare benefits. So if you improve the, the welfare of the animals that are involved, then there's also incentives. So for me, I feel it's like it's a win on environment and it's a win on animal welfare, which not everyone cares about, but I really do. It's something that is core to, to my firm and me as, as a person. So there's, there's benefits all around. And then the last thing that I really think is important to note is it's great if a lot of little companies or individuals make changes. It's, that's important and it's necessary. But when a company with the footprint like McDonald's makes a small change, or in this case, a 14% reduction change, their, their, their impact is so large because they're, they're just massive. So this is like smaller changes for a big organization actually has big volumetric impacts. And I think that this is a great thing to say. Yeah. And just for folks who don't know, uh, Friesland Campina is not just a Dutch, it's one of the largest uh, dairy cooperatives in the world. It's on par with like a Fonterra from New Zealand. Um, their revenues are like like $12 billion. Um, it's massive. So this is a big move. It, I think what it's also saying to the market is that both McDonald's and Big Dairy are starting to openly, uh, openly say, say and commit to lowering emissions. And for me, this let's tie it back to the beginning of the conversation policy. This is because so much more emissions disclosure is coming up um, from a regulatory point of view in Europe. And that's why you're seeing these moves. And that is why it is so important for us to push for better policy and for and, and policy can have such a huge impact on, on big industry. Definitely. And, and also this could be a signal to the other, other competitors out there to McDonald's that, okay, if they're doing this then we probably should take a look at it as well. Yeah. And, and if they're announcing it already, they know it's going to be scrutinized. That means more, there's more to come and there's probably more they're working on that they're not telling us. So Definitely. very positive to end on that, especially after the bombshell uh, policy investigations that we shared at the beginning. So definitely, but we will end it there, right? We want we to make sure you get we'll out there next week. I will be in Singapore for AgriFood Asia, but we will record the podcast and I will share more about what happened at Verge and um, Verge also has. So this is interesting. Uh, Verge is also doing a concurrent show called Bloom 23. And it's one of the first conferences I've ever seen all about biodiversity. So today I'm going to spend some time in that hall and let you know what's going on because that is an issue that is only going to become more important and it's fantastic to see innovation um, and tech kind of looking at it from a different point of view because normally biodiversity 
is more in the realm of, of, of nonprofits and conservation orgs. So I'm really looking forward to learning more there. No, that's awesome. I can't, I can't wait to hear the, the feedback and your takeaways on that. It seems super interesting. Fantastic. Um, thanks again, Steve. Thanks everyone. Remember to follow us or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Apple, Spotify, Google, pretty much everywhere and get in touch. Um, we haven't forgotten about Ozempic um, and we're still looking, so we're, we're, we're still just doing more research and kind of having conversations offline. There's a lot to learn. It is now in the news all the time, the GL1 drugs, and, and it's going to have a huge impact on food. So definitely something to think about, but um, we have more to share in the coming weeks. All right. See you next week, everyone.